So I don't know if anybody read ahead. It doesn't take super long to read Philippians. It's not like reading Romans or Hebrews or First and Second Corinthians. Uh, it's a short, sweet book, and uh, it's it's very it's loaded with a lot of content, but not uh, content that's too deep. You can go very very deep in chapter two, um, but I don't think that that is Paul's intent in chapter two, verse five. But we'll look at that a little bit. But what you notice as you go through the epistle to the Philippians, you notice that the book is very, very intimate. It's probably the most intimate letter uh, in the New Testament. Um, Paul just speaks so sweetly to them. And uh, he's, I think that Paul was probably the most fond of the, uh, the church in Philippi. He's very endearing. Uh, he says, I, I long for you with the affection of Christ, chapter 1, verse 8. And he says some things very similar to that later on. I don't think that he uh, was so fond of uh, Philippi because there was uh, you know, so few problems in the church. I don't think that's why. I just think that there was just something sweet about uh, this, this little church. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know why, I guess. You just see it come out as he writes to them, the way he talks about them, um, how he was constantly trying to return to Philippi. And, uh, but I don't, I don't really know precisely why he loved it so much, but um, the things that he said to them, uh, it's really a heartfelt kind of letter rather than an intellectual kind of letter. And Paul definitely had letters where they're heavier on the, the academic side, Romans for sure. Uh, and then, you know, the, the sweetness of Paul really comes out in Philippians. Ephesians probably is kind of half and half between the two, uh, where, as we talked about Galatians, 1 Corinthians, and Hebrews, it's Paul's coming on very strong. Uh, he's, he's disappointed and upset, kind of as a spiritual father to those ones. But here he comes alongside them, and it's just this very um, um, sweet and endearing kind of letter. It's very nice. Um, yeah. Now, when it, you know, you've probably had people come to you and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm new to the faith. I'm trying to figure out where to begin with the study in the scriptures. And if you're like me, you think of a gospel for them to study and perhaps one of the epistles. And so when people come to me like that, of course, I give them a gospel depending on, I think, you know, what they're ready for. Um, but then usually I turn them to the book of Philippians. Uh, and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, it's not that it's not without its challenges, but the, the letter uh, doesn't tie people up in heavy theology, uh, and, and uh, it, it doesn't enter into like you know severe or extreme doctrinal controversy, we might say, as with the book of Galatians, or with a lot of the moral problems facing uh, Corinth, especially in 1 Corinthians. And, and I'm not sure that 1 Corinthians is the best book to bring a new believer to uh, right away, uh, especially with all that that church was involved in. And uh, so anyway, I think that Philippians is great. It's short, it's sweet, it's practical, it's encouraging, and it tells you really important things that aren't, uh, you know, couched in such language that you, you just have to grind and rack your brains to figure it out. And uh, I, I just think it's really sweet. Maybe I'm a simpleton, maybe that's why um, I like it. I think it's just a great book. Um, also, in getting into Philippians, uh, it's like many of the other epistles of Paul. It's the book of Acts that we bring in to understand the historical context. And, um, but there's something cool about Philippians, 
And when, in, in to, when we look at the book of Acts, when we look at Acts, there's, there's a number of uh, pretty tremendous transitions when it comes to the propagation of the gospel. And uh, going to Philippi was one of those major transitions. Uh, as we know, the, the gospel came out of Israel, and then it went to Samaria, and then from Samaria went to Syria, and to Syria it went to Turkey, and from Turkey it went to where? It went to Europe. It went to Europe. You remember Jesus said, and this is where I'm supposed to say, next slide. Was that transition pretty good? All right. Um, he said, and you shall, you know, speaking to the apostles in chapter one of, of um, the book of Acts, he says, you shall be my witnesses or witnesses to me. I'm quoting a different translation. In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when we read the book of Acts, we realize that they did exactly as Jesus said here in sort of a, an outline. And uh, it wasn't just the outline of the book of Acts. It was actually the outline of the propagation of the gospel. And uh, so anyway, the apostles initially preached in Jerusalem and Judea, Acts chapter 2 through 5. And then Philip took the gospel to Samaria, Acts chapter 8. And then there's this kind of parenthetical thing in Philip's life where he leaves Philippi or uh, Samaria where all the action was. Uh, all these people were getting saved, filled with the Spirit, and it's this tremendous revival. And then he's called down to the Negev out in the desert to speak with one person, and he just happens to be a, an African man from uh, Ethiopia, and he's a, a powerful eunuch, uh, a servant of the queen of uh, Queen Candace, queen of Ethiopia. Uh, but then the gospel, during this uh, time when, of course, Paul's persecution scattered the church, the, uh, the, the gospel was taken to Antioch in Syria, which basically became the, we might say, you know, Jerusalem was the Jewish headquarters of the church. Antioch was the Gentile headquarters. But not only that, it was really this launch pad for uh, the gospel to the Gentile uh, there from Syria. And it was there that Paul, the Holy Spirit, separated Paul and Barnabas and then they were sent uh, to um, west across Turkey. Uh, that's the first missionary journey. And then the second missionary journey, when Paul went back to revisit the churches, uh, he um, went into Macedonia, um, which of course brought the gospel to Philippi. But what is interesting, that's the first church to receive the gospel in Europe, in Europe, to hear it and receive it. Now, Philippi certainly wasn't the end of the earth. But Philippi really was an amazing open door uh, uh, westward to what we might say was the most important city on the earth, which was Rome. And, um, and though Philippi was not as significant as Rome, it, it was an imperial city along the Ignatian Way. Uh, the Ignatian Way is a, a highway. Uh, Philippi was what many scholars have called Rome away from Rome. Rome away from Rome. It was a city filled with Roman patriots, uh, a lot of retired military that were, that were extreme loyalists to the Roman Empire. It was a city of Roman culture, Roman law. It was everything Rome, uh, except for it just wasn't located in Italy. Uh, and it's in today what we, would, uh, what we know as northern Greece. Change slides. I was a little late on that one. Here, let me go back. Change slides. Okay. Did I go too far? No, I didn't go too far. I messed myself up and we'll be lost for good. So, um, yeah. So, uh, we always go through authorship. Uh, like Paul's other epistles, 
uh, there's very little dispute and disagreement uh, over uh, authorship of this book. The book bears his name, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, it accurately describes Paul and his history uh, in chapter 3, 5 through 6 as this Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, he says, I, you know, if anybody can boast about uh, you know, being proficient in the flesh, things that they've done, their, their accomplishments, he says, I was, uh, I was a Jew, I, I was circumcised the eighth day, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, and uh, I was a Pharisee, and according to the law, I was blameless, and on, you know, Paul's really putting it out there. But it actually describes Paul. Uh, the salutations in the letter are basically Paul's signature, uh, the whole grace and peace thing. Uh, the, the style of writing is consistent with Paul's, and the theology is no doubt in the spirit and language of Paul, especially in chapter 2. And you can just see as Paul's getting into the whole Christological section about the incarnation, something in him wants to go as deep as he can. But I think he's kind of like pulling back, pulling back. That's not the intent of this letter. And, uh, and, and then also, we would call that internal evidence. The, the external evidence is that, it's interesting, on, on the earliest manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts of Philippians, they bear Paul's name on it. Now, none of them are the original autograph. Um, but uh, the earliest manuscripts bear his name, which just testifies to the fact that the earliest church fathers uh, were all in agreement that, that Philippians was written by Paul. And there's essentially no disagreement. Even the enemies of the church uh, knew that Paul had written uh, the book of Philippians. And uh, Interesting fact. And then currently, uh, there really are no skeptics that question Paul's authorship. So we're going to cling to that. But I always think it's important to remember that when we talk about uh, human authorship, uh, when it comes to the content of the scriptures, that all scripture was inspired, that is God breathed. Okay? So the people were the instrumental uh, author, where God is the primary author, making sure that everything that is written, everything that is recorded is not only true, but it's divinely authoritative, amen? So, and it has uh, bearing, uh, with absolute authority on Christian faith and practice. Otherwise, why would we uh, give our time to the scriptures other than a historical document? The date, uh, now Galatians is difficult to date. Uh, Philippians, not so much. Uh, it's pretty easy to date. Um, it's because of the available data. Uh, the letter is among the prison epistles of Paul. We know that. It's clear because he talks about being currently in chains. That's chapter 1, verse 7. It's also in verse 11 through 16 he talks about it. He also talks about his release in chapter 1, verse 19, uh, and then chapter 2, verse 24. And he talks about his interaction with the palace guard, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Not only does that tell us that he's in prison, it also tells us where he was in prison. That's important. Uh, that all fits his first Roman imprisoned, uh, imprisonment in Acts chapter 28. Here's why. Uh, while previously incarcerated in Caesarea, that's Acts 23 through 26, there was no palace guard and there's no Caesar's household, all of which Paul talks about uh, in Philippians. Uh, neither does it fit his latter Roman imprisonment because there was no hope of being released then as there was when he's talking to the, uh, the Philippians. When he's talking to Timothy, he's uh, it's imminent that he could be executed at any time. He, he has no hope of release, none of that. But when he talks to the Philippians, he is confident that he's going to get out. 
And so we have two different um, times, both in Rome. So Paul's first Roman imprisonment was somewhere between 61 and 62 AD. Pretty easy to, uh, to gather those dates up from the, the, uh, the information, both in the book of Acts and uh, the book of Philippians. Next slide. But you guys don't. Okay. It's nice that they're actually synchronized. Because normally when I speak English and Rogers speaks tech, they don't coalesce too well. So, so far so good. But anyway, so real quick, do you guys remember how Paul ended up in Philippi? How did he end up in Philippi? Uh, especially when his sights were on Ephesus and uh, the interior of Asia Minor. How did he do that? Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. And I think there's a lot of interesting application for um, why Paul didn't get uh, to go to Ephesus, but instead went to Europe. And uh, I think there's some really good information in all of that. So after uh, Paul acquired a young disciple named Timothy in the city of Lystra, that's Acts 16, 1 through 2, uh, which was in the Roman province of Galatia, by the way, uh, he began to make his way west across Turkey. But when he tried to push due west, which would have taken him straight to Ephesus, uh, the Lord, not the, well, the Lord, the Holy Spirit forbid him. And then he tried to go north into Bithynia, and the Spirit again did not permit him. So he changed his course a little bit more west, but kind of north. And then he ended up in the city of Troas on the coast, looking west over the Aegean Sea. And then it was in Troas that Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia pleading with him to come and help them. Acts 16.9, but when he got there, he met a woman. Not sure what that's all about, but um, he met a lot of men too, but uh, the first prominent figure is Lydia when he gets there. Uh, So his party left for Macedonia on the other side of the Aegean Sea, and then as we said earlier, for the very first time, the gospel was introduced to Europe, to Europe, and the first European city to receive the gospel was this small imperial city of Philippi. Now, the importance of bringing the gospel to Europe before Asia probably, uh, I would say, cannot be overstated. Uh, Paul, as we uh, said, he wanted to preach in Asia, but the Holy Spirit wanted him in Europe, at least first, okay? At least first. Um, Acts 16 doesn't tell us why Europe was a priority. It just tells us why Asia and Bithynia were not priorities, kind of. It just says the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. And what it did is it kind of boxed Paul in, and he had to make his way uh, toward Europe. Uh, You know, and who knows exactly, uh, well, who exactly was influenced for the gospel during Paul's stay in Philippi or Berea or Thessalonica along what what is known as the Ignatian Way, or who the gospel impacted in Athens, and Corinth, and what impact it had on the dispersion of the gospel. It's funny that the Holy Spirit is so adamant of staying uh, on this course to Europe, and he never says, why not, or why, and then he never tells us what's so important about uh, being in Europe. But apparently, it's the only time in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is forbidding, not permitting, and then there's no explanation. And, And really, he doesn't have to explain himself, does he? But it makes you wonder, What is so important? And I think it's important to point out, it's funny how we think we know so well where and when the Holy Spirit should work. But like Paul, our timing may be way off. 
Okay, Paul wanted to go to Asia, and he didn't get there for a, a number of years, okay? But then he finally did get to Asia, and it proved to be the gospel hotbed that it was, but the timing was off. The timing was off. It's all very interesting. And just learning to trust the Lord's timing, I think, is, is so important. It's so important. So something also important, I think, to consider about the letter to the Philippians is that it was written to a, a Gentile-majority church. Now, there were some Jews in Philippi. There may not have been a male Jew in Philippi. Uh, there could have been. There was no synagogue in Philippi. For one, it was illegal. Uh, but we also know that there wasn't because on the Sabbath, we find... Paul out on a riverbed, okay, where the Jewish women would gather to pray. There's no men mentioned, okay. Now, Lydia was a seller of purple, okay, which, and there's no mention of her husband when, because the missionary team stays at her house, and there's no mention of her husband. She might be, her husband might be dead and she inherited the business. We don't really know, but there's not a strong Jewish presence in the city, and there may be no Jewish men, and so there's not because women weren't especially Jewish women. Uh, they didn't assert themselves, okay? It was culturally off limits. And, uh, and so this letter is interesting because it's written to a Gentile majority church where there really is no Jewish influence. That has changed, I believe, seriously, the content uh, of the letter. And uh, I think it possibly is the absence of things that may be as important. So the things that are not stated might be as important as the things that are stated. Let me put it this way. The Gentiles, as we look at the other uh, New Testament letters, they got their knowledge of the Old Covenant from the Jews. Was that good or bad to the other churches? It wasn't good. It wasn't good. Okay. But because there was no real Jewish presence in Philippi, the church never got bogged down in the law. They never got bogged down in the law. And so Paul never said anything about it. He only warned them about the Judaizers because he was confident that they would be on his tail. They would be coming to town, but he doesn't, they haven't been influenced by the Jews and their legalism and their insistence on circumcision and the law. Okay? No influence, so he doesn't say anything, but he just warns them. When they come, beware of them. Okay? And they're going to come to you boasting. They're going to come to you about how great they are because of their law-keeping and their Jewishness and all of these things. And he goes, that's in chapter 2. He says, look, or chapter 3, he says, I can outdo all of them. But trust me, there's nothing like the excellence of knowing Christ, him alone. So anyway, I'm probably going to explore that uh, with the churches along the Ignatian Way as we go through Galatians. Because the Galatians were a Jewish, Galatia was a, a Jewish hotbed. Okay, their influence was heavy in there. And so the churches had a lot of that influence. Not so much so especially with Philippi and some of the other churches. And we find that where there was very little Jewish influence, there's very uh, little mention of the law. In fact, there's no direct quote from the Old Testament in the book of Philippians. There is uh, an allusion to Isaiah, which we'll talk about. So anyway, very interesting. I need to research it more, and it's, it's, uh, it's high on my list. Next slide, doctrinal contributions. Funny how my font and print is so different from yours. What did you do to it, Roger? Okay. Uh, as far as um, some of the theology, there's not, I wouldn't say there's probably not tons of theology in it, uh, though you can go into really deep theology in chapter two, but I think Paul is trying to avoid that. He's stating it because it's important for application, but um, 
Uh, anyway, there is that section in chapter 2 that critics have used in an attempt to diminish, surprisingly, I guess nothing the critics do should be too surprising, but they try to use that section to diminish the deity of Christ. Uh, but what they say, I think, really just reveals their intent. Okay, their intent. Uh, they have an agenda to destroy uh, everything foundational to Christianity. So whenever they see an opportunity, they kind of read into the text what they want it to say, and then they interpret it that way, and then they throw it in the Christian's face. And sometimes when Christians aren't ready, they are caught off guard by that, and they don't really know how to answer. Uh, but when you look closer at the text, you go, well, that's not what it's saying. Anyway, the passage says this, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And notice how Paul starts. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So the critics would like the text to say that Jesus emptied himself of his deity in order to become a man. Okay? That in the incarnation, uh, he ceased to be God. Uh, they're basically saying here that Paul is just really admitting that Jesus was just a man all along and he never really was deity. That's what they're trying to get at uh, with this, this point that they're trying to make. But the text doesn't actually say what they want it to say. It doesn't say that Jesus emptied himself of deity or that he ceased to be God. The text just doesn't say that, okay? Um, not at all. Jesus, the text says, humbled himself not by giving up his deity, not by emptying himself of anything, but by condescending to humanity uh, without enjoying what his deity entitled to him. That's what it's saying. It would be like a king who temporarily took off his royal robes. He descended uh, his majestic throne. He refused to enjoy the rights of his position. And instead, he put on the clothing of a peasant. He worked as a peasant uh, he endured a peasant's life all for the sake of peasants. That's essentially what Jesus did. Okay? It would be like a great king from a great empire serving his servants. Yeah. He wouldn't cease to be king. He would only cease to operate in his role as king in order to identify with his subjects and do something for them that they could never do for themselves. Uh, Dr. Norman Geisler says this, he says, in, in Christ's incarnation, that is taking on flesh, was not the subtraction of deity, but the addition of humanity. Nice, easy, simple statement that clarifies it. Okay? He didn't become less when he took on flesh, he actually became more. He took on a, another mode of existence. Humanity was added to his deity, but by stooping to our level and taking on flesh, he appeared to be less than deity. But appearances can be what? That's right. That's right. Yep. Paul said to the Colossians, for in Christ dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. That's Colossians 2. In Christ the man dwells all of deity. Now he's not saying there, you know, the King James and the New King James say Godhead. And we confuse that in today's language to mean the Trinity. Uh, we say the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The word there in the Greek does not mean trinity. It means deity. It means the full essence of deity. It resided in Jesus himself. So he didn't become 
less. Yep. And he didn't become, you know, like, like uh, some uh, ancient theologians, some heretics today say that he was, he, like the, the, the Greeks believed, part man, and part God, a demigod. No, no, no. The scriptures teach 100% God, 100% man, two natures in one person. Or as the ancient theologians would say, the hypostatic union, the union of two natures into one person. So, but anyway, you can go very deep into the incarnation because there's no, there's no miracle uh, that, is, that has ever occurred that is as profound as the incarnation. Okay, that is the one that is most difficult to wrap your mind around. But getting deeply into that is not Paul's point. His point is in verse 5. What's his point? He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he explains to us this example of Christ, who was the high king of heaven, who descended his, essentially his royalty, his majesty, this place where he was enjoying the worship of the angels, ruling over the universe and, and all of that. And he became a baby born in poverty on the run from Herod and then raised in poverty in the city on the other side of the tracks, as it were, in Nazareth, okay, a city of no repute. And uh, so he humbled himself so that he might die on the cross as our Savior. So that's his point. He's not trying to be deeply theological. He's actually just trying to be practical and present to us this, this example of Jesus, yeah, the ultimate example of humility. And then also, real quick, just to demonstrate further that Jesus was not somehow diminished in his deity, Paul makes this one reference uh, to the Old Testament from Isaiah 45, verse 23, and and he makes it from uh, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, regarding every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. This is very interesting. In the Old Testament reference, the person that everyone will bow down to and, and confess in the text, it's Yahweh, it's Jehovah. So what is Paul saying about Jesus? He's Jehovah, he's Yahweh, that's right. Uh, That's the covenant name of God. Uh, There is no stronger language in the Hebrew for deity than the personal name of God. So he's not, there's none of this diminishing garbage in the text. Uh, Another issue of doctrine in Philippians is that of sanctification. Sanctification. Paul mentions two important facts about it uh, in the book. The first one is a divine work of God. It's not a work of man. It's a divine work of God. And it's a process. It's a process, Okay. Uh, both Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 13 describe sanctification as the work of God. He says he is the author, he, or rather he authors the work, and he finishes it. He authors, he finishes. Who's the author of our sanctification? Jesus is. That's right. Chapter 1, verse 6. And he is the one who works in us, as he says in that text in 2.13, both to be willing and to do or perform what is well-pleasing in his sight. And then the same passage is confirmed that sanctification is a process and not a one-time event. So he begins the work and he brings it to conclusion. That's a process. And he is working in us, 2.13, stated in the present tense in the Greek, which means it's constantly ongoing. Sanctification is a divine work and it's a process. Now we're certainly responsible for cooperating with the divine work, okay? If we were to graph our sanctification or our life being uh, further conformed day by day into Christ, if we grafted it, it should, it, it should not be like this, okay? It should be 
maybe like this. Not like this, but like this. Amen? We should be progressing toward uh, his, his likeness. Next slide. The outline. All right, uh, I said this about Galatians. Uh, just like any book in the Bible, you can have an exhaustive outline. I just don't want to exhaust you with them. And uh, by the time I get to the book of Revelation, I'll have this down with uh, the Bible survey, and then we'll be done. Okay. So uh, Gabe had told Roger something about me stealing outlines from Geisler and that I shouldn't say it anymore because it's a given. Uh, he doesn't know that I know that, but I do because Roger is a gossip, and so he told me everything. So I didn't steal this from Geisler. I'm, at least I did. I'm just not telling you. That. So it's, it's super short, sweet, um, really four points uh, of the broader outline. It's the, chapter one is the philosophy of Christian living. Chapter two is the pattern for Christian living. And uh, don't change slide. I'm just going to flip real quick. The prize for Christian living, chapter three, and power for Christian living. We'll get the slide thing figured out. Now, when you read the introduction to uh, Paul's letters, some of them are, it's like, what, what have you saved for the content of the book? You know, when I read Ephesians chapter one, I'm like, this should be at the end because it's like the grand finale of all things Christian, okay? And I kind of feel like much of that should be at the, this here should be at the end of Philippians just because of the way that it's written. Uh, Paul displays in the, the, the language and his intense interest in these people, just this wonderful philosophy of Christian living that I don't think can be ignored. There's so much to study and enjoy out of uh, chapter one. Uh, yeah, Paul in, in this introduction, he's thankful for people. He's expectant of Christ's work in people. He's praying for people. He's giving hope to people and he's encouraging them. And it's just this, you've read it, but read it again. It's just so sweet how he comes across to them. And uh, he says, I just, you guys fill my thoughts. You fill my heart. And because of that, I'm just so thankful and grateful for you. I long to be with you. Um, I'm praying for you. And then he's encouraging them. He's giving them hope. You know, Christ, he's the author and finisher of your faith. You know, hang in there. He's got you. Uh, all this stuff about his Christ's sovereignty. It's very sweet. In chapter 2, uh, as we've already talked about a little bit, Paul instructs them with the example of Christ's humility, calling them to unity, service, obedience, sanctity, blamelessness, and loyalty. All the example of Christ. Chapter three, I switched. Okay, you got it there. Yeah. Paul is talking um, about, as we mentioned, he's, he's saying, if anybody can boast in the flesh and their accomplishments, it's me. And he goes through this resume of all these things all Jewish. Uh, I've told my kids, if, there, if the Jews made action figures, Paul would be one. Because to them, he was a hero. You know, being of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, being blameless according to the law, being a Pharisee. And then, and then the pinnacle of his, his achievements was persecuting the church. He would have had an action figure. And uh, he would have had Stephen under his feet or something. You know, Paul would have just been the champion for the Jews. And then Paul turns on his heels and he says, but all of those things I've considered dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And the word knowledge, there's the word for experience. It's not just this intellectual or academic knowledge. It's I, I have experienced intimacy with the God of heaven. And, um, and then he, he goes into Christ as his, his one supreme passion. His one supreme passion. He wants to 
you know, have experience more fellowship with his suffering. Uh, he wants to be conformed to his death. Uh, why he says stuff like that, I, I have some guesses, but uh, he just wants to share in all things Jesus. Um, but he's saying that our passion for him uh, should create this extreme confidence, excuse me, in him, uh, should outshine all of our other affections, should consume all of our attention and exhaust our greatest efforts. He's saying there's, there's one thing that I do. I forget all of that stuff from my past, whatever it was. What was it again? I can't remember. And then he's, I'm pursuing Christ. I'm reaching forward. I'm pressing on to the prize, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I, he says, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to lay hold of that thing for which Christ has laid hold of me. He's going to lay hold of Jesus, whatever he does. And so it's just this, this consuming passion of Paul. And, and, you know, some people have said, well, you know, you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Well, that's a misdirected form of spirituality. But truly, the more consumed you are with Jesus, the more practical and useful your life will become for earth. If you're consumed with Jesus and his lordship and all of that, you know, obedience is going to flow out of your life. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. You know, and so this passion for Christ will influence and empower everything in life. And uh, so Paul really nails it there in chapter 3. Chapter 4 is power for Christian living. Uh, chapter 4 is probably one of the most quoted uh, chapters in the New Testament, I would say. Um, especially uh, uh, verse 6, you know, be anxious for nothing. Uh, but sadly, we need to finish Paul's thought there um, about meditating. Anyway, um, yeah, Paul in chapter 4, he shows us how to thrive in our Christian experience. He begins by uh, prioritizing the healing of relationships between these two women and uh, tells, hey, get along. And he says to the church, he says, help them get along. So he brings the whole family together and uh, getting along is not an option. So just start getting along, okay? And um, so healing relationships and then rejoicing in Christ, uh, living fearlessly, thinking wholesomely, continuing in generosity and trusting Christ with everything. That's it. And then he closes out with grace to you or peace rather. So that's all I got. Five minutes early. It's impressive. We'll go ahead and stand up. We'll pray. If you have questions about uh, Philippians or something that I've said, I'd love to chat with you. All right. Well, Father, we love you. And... Uh, we thank you so much. Lord Jesus, we're thankful to you that in submission to your Father, uh, you humbled yourself. You became of no reputation. You came in the form of a servant as a man. And you were obedient to your Father uh, to the point of death on a cross. And we're grateful that you rose and that you were exalted and that all things pertaining to the gospel apply to us. And um, not only are we saved and being sanctified, we get to enjoy you. As David said, that in your presence pleasures for joy everlasting. And so Lord, help us like Paul, uh, as he says in Philippians 3, to be joined to you in such a way that uh, the relationship is intimate, thriving, and that life really becomes Christ. As Paul said to the Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith. And uh, so help us, Lord. We just love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.